John chapter 4 and verse 31. John chapter 4 and verse 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. Whilst the disciples have been in the town of Sychar buying food, the Lord has been having a deep conversation with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. She has now gone away from the well back to the town to tell the people the staggering news that she has found the Messiah. The disciples have returned from the town to the well with food. And they are encouraging the Lord to have something to eat with them. They are all in the middle of a journey and are tired. And so the disciples expect the Lord to be anxious to sit down and to take some nourishment. And so they pray him, they beseech him, they urge him, Master, eat! Verse 32, But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. The Lord states that far from thinking about the length of time since his last meal, he is in fact being sustained in such a way that his appetite is a totally secondary matter. The Lord is not saying that his hunger has been taken away by some kind of miracle. Whilst that of course would have been possible, it would have been inconsistent with the whole scheme of our Lord's incarnation which was to take upon himself the limitations of our frail human nature. Therefore, just as we do, the Lord experienced tiredness, hunger, thirst and pain. So when he tells the disciples that he does in fact have food to eat, he is referring to his inward spiritual strength prevailing over his physical needs. Our Lord is so living on the level of the Holy Spirit as not to be preoccupied at all with the demands of his mortal flesh as most men so often are. Even with us who are far less filled with the Spirit. There have surely been occasions when we have been so immersed in an urgent task that we have gladly worked through a normal mealtime. The importance of the work stopped us from focusing upon our normal bodily requirements. What is the need for some food when compared with the urgency of telling a lost sinner the way of salvation. And if we think of 
our Lord's ministry in those terms that he had come to seek and save that which was lost and was totally focused upon that mission. We can begin to see how the concerns of his own body fell into second place. So the Lord says, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. <clears throat> but the disciples do not understand the spiritual import of what the Lord says. Verse 33, therefore said the disciples one to another, hath any man brought him aught to eat? They think that he has just referred to ordinary food and that he has in fact eaten. And they imagine that someone else may have obtained the food for him. They simply do not perceive at this stage that he is so utterly absorbed in his work of serving his heavenly father and is so empowered by the spirit of God that he enjoys a level of divine sustenance of which the disciples as yet know nothing. And then the Lord says this in verse 34. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. The Lord is filled with the Holy Spirit beyond measure. And so he has a perfect and never failing motivation to do God's will. And it is this fact to which he refers, his all-consuming motivation to do his Father's will. That is his meat. That is his daily food. Now, the disciples in the future would come to know of this spiritual food and motivation for themselves, but at present, they are still learning. And so they do not understand that their master is being sustained, even physically, by the spirit-given desire to do his father's perfect work. Now, what exactly was this work which was so preoccupying our Lord? In this immediate instance, and in countless other instances, of course, the Lord's preoccupation is to speak to a non-believer about his or her soul. The Lord has been confronting this woman at the well with her sin. And we read back in verse 18, the Lord said to her, Thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. So, this tells us something about the moral status of this particular woman. The Lord has also been telling her that he has a special type of water to give her living water. Water that will make her soul live forever. 
This then is the task which makes the Lord forget about his tiredness and about his hunger. He desires to save this woman from her sins. And that consumes him. That takes him up. He forgets about his bodily concerns. He is carrying out the whole purpose of his mission. 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is why the Lord is speaking to this woman. She is deeply immersed in sin. She urgently needs God's mercy. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ is our pattern of conduct. And if we are believers in him and indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, we should also be inwardly motivated just as he was. And so we should have this burning desire to be overtaken in the work of saving sinners. There is a danger amongst Christians of looking at the world and saying, oh, things are so bad, and we're told in the Bible that things will get worse in the last days, that they withdraw and saying, well, the world's given over to wickedness, there's nothing we can do, we'll just faithfully follow the Lord in our own personal lives. And there's a danger of falling into that trap and not having a burden for the lost condition of those around us. So we concentrate on our own holiness, which is very important, of course, and just following the Lord in our own personal lives, but we, as it were, let the world get on with it. Well, let us try and emulate the Lord himself. He could not rest while he saw lost sinners all around him. He came to save them. He says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and finish his work. So each of us has to ask the overriding question, is my desire and preoccupation to do God's work? Do I have an all-consuming commitment to the service of Christ and the salvation of lost souls? Now, this, of course, does not mean that all are called to the public ministry of God's word, and indeed, most Christians are not called to that. But all are called to witness to Christ and to be living witnesses to him. And to serve him in all holiness of life, not just quietly in a corner, but as a means of ministering to the lost all around. 
Our Lord said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Glorify your Father which is in heaven. God has particularly ordained that every believer belongs to a local church where the true gospel is preached. You see, no Christian can opt out of that need to, to identify with other believers and join in the work of the gospel. In other words, we, we have to serve Christ as well as just believe in Christ. Now, of course, nowadays it is not always easy to find a church where the scriptures are believed, where reverent worship is adopted. But that is no reason to abandon the ideal. If the local body of believers has no committed week-in, week-out workers whose lives revolve around Christ's service, there quite simply would be no church. And there would be no advancement of Christ's kingdom. Now, we all, of course, have necessary career commitments, necessary family commitments. And it is part of our Christian duty to give due regard to these commitments. But even these things are not reasons to neglect our service to Christ. They're not reasons to neglect corporate prayer, corporate worship and the corporate study of God's word. Not to speak of also doing all those things privately. In all the busyness of life, we must never lose sight of the fact that we would not have any life at all if God had not put us here. It is he who has given us our work and our families in the first place. It is therefore a great ingratitude if those blessings actually became the reason for neglecting the giver of those blessings. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1 and verse 20 and 21, Christ shall be magnified in my body, for to me to live is Christ. To me to live is Christ. And that should be our declaration also. Now, one wonders how many inhabitants of this Samaritan town in John 4 called Sychar are today in heavenly glory and eternally praising God because they came to faith in the Lord through the testimony of this woman at the well. There remains an obligation of urgency upon each of us to work that men might 
be saved. As soon as this woman realised who Jesus Christ was, she had to go and tell others about him. And so each of us, and every true Christian, needs to have a sense of urgency about imparting the gospel message. Is it our meat and drink to tell others of the Saviour? Is it our meat and drink to keep God's commandments and be an example to others by our holiness? If a person near to us were physically bleeding to death, we would surely think this is an emergency, we must do something about it. Well, the spiritual predicament of those around us is even more deadly. There is an eternal hell from which men must escape. Now in verse 35 here, our Lord says, Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. So the Lord now continues to address the disciples here. And um, he asks them, about the time of the year in relation to the harvest. And he asks this question. He, he says, how long is the time before we actually go out and uh, reap the harvest? And it was four months from that particular time. Now, to help us understand this, let us go back to verse 28. We read of the woman, she went her way into the city and saith to the men, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Now, that context is important uh, in understanding verse 35 here. Because the Lord is telling the disciples to look at the approaching crowd. You see, there is a considerable number of townsfolk coming towards the Lord because the woman has just told them about what the Lord has done and said to her. And so the Lord is looking at this approaching crowd of people. Now, the time of the year in which this encounter takes place is December or January. Uh, the crops have been sowed in the previous November. The harvest is due around mid-April. And it is possible that the disciples uh, have been talking about this, about the time of the harvest, as they look at the green shoots 
in the fields round about. So, as far as the particular time of year is concerned, when this event is taking place, the harvest is still four months away, quite a long time away. There is four months to go until the crops appear in a white blaze ready to be reaped. So the crops at the moment are very much in the green growing stage. So the Lord takes advantage of that fact, the stage which the crops are in, and also the fact that there is this crowd of people coming now towards him. And he uses a harvest metaphor to explain the urgency of preaching the gospel. And so he tells his disciples to look at this approaching crowd of people. And he says to them, lift up your eyes and look on the fields for they are white already to harvest. Now, if they look around at the fields, he, he sees that they're not white, they're green. They won't be white for another four months. But the Lord is referring to the spiritual condition of the crowd coming towards him. That these people are ready to be reaped and brought into the kingdom of God. And that is what he means when he says, the fields are white already to harvest. Now, uh, in purely earthly terms, the harvest is still a long way off, but there is a spiritual harvest which right now is white and ready to be reaped. Because approaching them are these people of Sychar, in whose hearts seeds have been sown by the Samaritan woman. And these seeds are the words of God's truth. Now, the Samaritans did reject most of the Old Testament prophets, uh, but they did nevertheless have the law of Moses. And so even from the law of Moses, they were prepared for Christ's coming because of their knowledge of the first five books of the Bible. And so if we look back at verse 25, uh, we see that the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. So even this Samaritan woman knew that the Messiah was expected. Uh, and uh, even the Samaritans obviously see the coming Messiah as a teacher, rather than as a political ruler because she says in verse 25 when he is come he will tell us all things so uh, she has an insight here uh, which many of the Jews did not have because they were looking for uh, a political ruler who would cast out the Romans but this woman at the well knows that the Messiah will be a teacher now, if we go back to chapter 3 and verse 23, 
uh, we are told that John also was baptizing in Enon near to Salim because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. Now, those place names there in John 3.23 refer to locations in Samaria and Salim may well have been near to Sychar. So it is a fact that Samaritans have heard John the Baptist preach. Perhaps even these citizens of Sychar had already been prepared to receive the gospel by hearing John preach. So, by Moses in his writing of the first five books of the Bible, and by John the Baptist in his preaching on the Lord's imminent appearing, precious gospel seed has already been sown in the Samaritans' hearts. And so that is why the Lord says to the disciples here in verse 35, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And so the time is imminent for people to hear the gospel and be saved. That is what the Lord is saying. And he goes on in verse 36, And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. But both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. Now at harvest time the farmer takes on extra labourers, whom of course he pays. Likewise the disciples will be gloriously rewarded if they faithfully proclaim the name of Christ. We're not thinking of earthly money of course, but they will be gloriously rewarded. And the fruit that they will bring in will be souls saved for all eternity. As we have said, the seed has already been sown by John's ministry. uh, And now uh, we see the Lord himself sowing seed. And all of this is a consolidation of the groundwork done by the Old Testament prophets. And, And as we have just said... Even these Samaritans benefited from the first five books of the Bible, the works of Moses. So as the apostles go about their future evangelistic work, the Lord is telling them that they are going to be reaping where others have laboured. They are going to be building on the work of the Old Testament prophets, for example. They are going to be building on the ministry of John the Baptist. And as they go around uh, preaching after the Lord's resurrection and ascension, they will be building on the work of the Lord himself. And so this is what the Lord is explaining in verse 36. uh, That those who sow and those who reap will rejoice together as people believe and are saved. So as these disciples will henceforth go forth 
and preach about Christ, they will be building on the labours of others who have gone before. The Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist and the Lord himself. And, uh, the Lord says in verse 37 here, And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. In arable farming, it is not always the same person who sows the seed and later reaps the crop. Uh, different people will be involved. Let the disciples, by preaching the gospel now, reap the fruits of the labours of those who have gone before them. The Lord himself, when he has finished his earthly ministry, will have gone before them. John the Baptist will have gone before them. The Old Testament prophets have gone before them. And so the task of the disciples is to reap where others have sown. Verse 38. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labour. Other men laboured and ye are entered into their labours. So the disciples must carry on from where the Lord himself along with faithful believers in Israel such as Simeon and Anna have been preparing the ground and sowing the seed for the Messiah's appearing. Now, when we preach the gospel today, we too are building on the labours of others. We are, of course, building on the labours of those who wrote the scriptures. We are building on the labours of those who have contended for the faith down the ages. We are building on the labours of those in our own day who have faithfully witnessed to non-Christians before we do that. So when, for example, we go into High Wycombe High Street, uh, we may well be building on the labours of other Christians, perhaps in other parts of the country, who have witnessed to those walking by. And so others have done the work before us, perhaps that we might have the privilege of reaping. As we go out and proclaim the name of Christ, uh, we shall, of course, often be sowers ourselves rather than reapers. We shall be preparing the ground that others might one day reap. So we will often find we get no immediate response, but others might reap on what we have already sown, the seed which we have already sown. And so, whatever we do, we are building on the foundation laid by Christ himself and by um, his work through the Old Testament and New Testament prophets. So, our task today is, is not to bring brand new revelation to people, new insights New teaching, we're simply building upon 
the labours of all those who have gone before, all those who have written the scriptures. We uphold the faith once for all delivered unto the saints and we build on that foundation. And so we need to realise that we are involved in this work and, and it's not just us. And as we are witnessing today to others, uh, we may well be building upon the foundation which has already been laid by other Christians. Now in verse uh, 39 we read, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified he told me all that ever I did. Now this, this should really encourage us. It, it demonstrates what untold good a witnessing Christian can accomplish. We are told here that many Samaritans who are quite wayward theologically come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because this woman has testified to them. She has caused many others to seek out the Lord and to learn from him firsthand. God has ordained that the souls of men shall be reaped by the human agency of testifying believers. I mean, God could just convert people without any human instrumentality, but he does not choose to work that way. He chooses to work through us. This woman, having had her own heart exposed by the truth of Christ, cannot now but tell others about him. Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. And so this woman at the well is becoming a working, testifying servant of her newfound Lord. And this again reminds us of the truth that each individual believer has a crucial role in the life of the church. Each one of us may be a crucial link in the chain whereby someone becomes a Christian and is saved from their sins. And so we might be called to sow the seed and others will build upon that. But we have a vital role. Remember, this, this woman, this grossly immoral woman is suddenly being used as an instrument to lead others to Christ. And so she now carries out her task of telling others about the Saviour. You see, she has a unique role here. No one else in Syca had quite the experience she had in that conversation at the well with the Lord. And so she has this unique role and part to play. And so it is 
with each one of us. There might be a specific individual and it's only us that um, God can use to, to bring that individual uh, to know the Saviour because of our particular association with that person. And so, whilst of course uh, most are not called to full-time preaching, that, that does not mean uh, that the ordinary believer in inverted commerce is not involved in this great task of spreading Christ's truth. Each one of us can be used mightily in the furtherance of God's kingdom by uh, witnessing to the lost and by contributing to the life and growth of the local church. Just being present at a church meeting can make so much difference in respect of others being encouraged. That is one more person praying, one more person increasing in his or her knowledge of the word of God. One more person setting the example that the honouring of God is more important than any other human activity. Here is a public identification with Christ. When, when we gather here, we gather at public meetings. The door is open. Anyone can walk in. We are publicly identifying with Christ. It's not a closed meeting. Let us never forget that we are saved by Christ in order then to be his active servants and to work in his church. And notice how quickly this woman at the well uh, changes from convert to active servant, an active worker. As soon as she is converted, she takes up the role of working and witnessing to others. And we need to learn from this, never to lose sight of the urgency of being a witness to Christ, to the lost all around us. As we read in one of our hymns, Men die in darkness at your side, without a hope to cheer the tomb. Take up the torch and wave it wide, the torch that lights time's thickest gloom. Men are dying at our side. We cannot stand by and do nothing. As the Lord tells the disciples here, we must look at the potential harvest around us and get on with the work. The hundreds of thousands who will be in London on Saturday to celebrate that wickedness, they are people who need saving. From their sins. The Lord here is teaching us to have a right focus for our lives, to be focused upon His service. Are we so consumed with zeal that we forget the earthly concerns which normally preoccupy most people? Remember our Lord said, My meat 
is to do the will of him that sent me. And may we emulate our Lord in being consumed with the Father's service. May God help each one of us to have a burden for the lost and to do whatever we can to lead them to the Saviour. Amen.